Good morning. My name is Pastor Jimmy. It is a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Jimmy. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I am one of the pastors here at the Hill Church. Let me say it that way. My mom did not name me Pastor Jimmy for a lot of reasons. If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to reiterate if you are a guest, as you saw on the screen, you also should see in a seat back in front of you, if you're sitting over in the hardwood floor areas on the table behind you, there's a connect card and a prayer card. We would love to, if you're a guest with us, we'd love to capture your information that way so we can follow up Christ here. And we'd love to be praying for you as well. You can fill out both of those and either give them back to me after service or there is a slot in our office door outside on the side of our building. You can drop that in this morning. Now, early Thursday morning this week, um, I got an unexpected phone call from a family member informing me that a mutual friend uh, had tragically lost a loved one. As I heard the details, my, my heart broke. I felt the sense of loss, the sense of pain for the family, especially knowing this friend of mine not to be asked, as pastors often are to reach out and try to help the family process. I can be honest with you, I, I love pastoring. But this thing I, I dread. Uh, to call or sit with, some, with somebody in deep pain due to the loss of a loved one when they don't know the Lord. And to try and find something helpful, caring, And true to say is a very difficult thing. But Thursday morning I I prayed and I made the phone call. And I was left really considering the inadequacy and the inability of language to articulate something of substance and hope regarding death. With all these thoughts and the inadequacy of my language still swirling in my head, I sat down at my desk, opened my Bible, and then I turned my attention. And I couldn't help but be drawn again to a specific verse that I want to draw our attention to this Easter morning, which says, because it was not possible for Him to be held by death. Or as another translation puts it, It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The impossibility of death is that phrase that I want us to consider this Easter morning. Now, the events of Good Friday, the events of the day that ended with the slaying of the Son of God, had all the appearance of human tragedy, similar to simply the phone call that I received this week. Jesus' last words from the cross, it is finished, had all the signs of apparent defeat. In fact, that is exactly the way disciples who knew Him best, they mourned. They hid. Without trying to find the language to describe what the heck had gone wrong. And they quickly began speaking of Jesus in the past tense. On the Emmaus Road, when approached by a stranger, who in fact turned out to be the resurrected Christ Himself, They ironically spoke to Jesus in the past tense. They said, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
The life and ministry of Jesus following His death was already in the past tense for them. Sadly, it seemed to simply be another human tragedy. But what seemed to be be mere human tragedy proved to be God's divine strategy at bringing about and accomplishing the very redemption of His people. So as I reflected upon my Thursday morning phone conversation, I was reminded again of the pain and tragedy of death, which as we all know is impossible. It's impossible for you, for me, to escape the clutches of death. But we're all here this morning to celebrate because the impossibility that we face concerning death was swallowed up in death's impossibility over Jesus. It was impossible for death to hold Jesus. And I want to press into that this morning and say, possible for death to hold Jesus. And I want to give you a main idea, and then I want to dig into the rest of our time in this great sermon in Acts chapter 2 and make my point. And here's my main idea. Death could not hold Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the unique Son who forever reigns as the exalted Lord by way of His resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the unique Son who forever reigns as the exalted Lord from the dead. This morning we have the privilege, as I'm going to read in just a minute, beginning in verse 22, we have the privilege, I have the privilege, of preaching the on Easter Sunday as a church. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, I'll read down to verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. You, by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, brothers, I say to you, he and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord, we pause this morning after the reading of your word, before the preaching of your word. And Lord, and I have before me the inspired 
your inspired words that came through the mouth of your apostle. The first. And Lord, the result of that, the text says, is 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. Lord, we ask with humble hearts this morning that you would awaken us in the same way. That you would arrest our souls to the resurrection. That we wouldn't just say that Christ is the exam that and submit our lives to him. And Lord, anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, might you impress upon their heart their need for your Christ, our Savior this morning. That there is salvation found in no other name, but anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, guard our time, guard our hearts, guard my language and my words now as we exalt Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our context this morning is the day of Pentecost. And we might call it Peter's first Pentecostal sermon. And following his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended into glory, resulting in his Holy Spirit descending on his people, just as the Old Testament prophesied and just as Jesus promised. But this scene caused some people begin to speak in tongues and languages they were not trained in. This led to some falsely concluding these people got to be drunk. But to find a Jew, let alone 120, drinking wine at this time of the morning on such a holy day as Pentecost was absurd. So Peter's sermon, which is our focus this morning, begins in response to this odd accusation. And upon answering it, Peter goes straight to Jesus. Peter's sermon is Jesus-centered, as every biblical sermon should be. It begins with the ends with Jesus as the exalted Lord in verse 34. And all of its content in between concerns the person and work of Jesus, aiding us in answering our question from verse 24. Why was it not possible for death to hold Jesus? Answers to that question. Why was it not possible for death to hold Jesus? Answer number one, because of his unique person. Peter begins in verse 22 by addressing his audience directly. Look at it. He challenges them to listen to his words. Men of Israel, hear these words, he says. But then he quickly moves to his subject matter. Jesus of Nazareth. Though often overlooked, and I know that because I answer you guys' emails a lot, the subject line of an email is really important. When you have something important to communicate with me, the subject line of hey, hey, doesn't help. Hey, hey, or... What's up? Catching up. Peter leaves no confusion concerning his subject matter this morning. The unique historical person of Jesus of Nazareth is the subject matter and content of his message. Jesus breathed in the Middle East. And this historic figure was attested by God to real historical people as the end of verse 22 says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, look at it, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Hear the the loaded, explicit language here. Christianity has no place for mythology or fable. Has no place for saga or legend. It is historical reality grounded in the public 
witness and testimony. Now, this word attested gives the idea of accreditation or validation. And notice it's God who is said to be doing the attesting or validating here. How exactly did it say he did this? God attested Jesus by working miracles, signs and one. These miracles and mighty acts pointed beyond themselves to the character, significance, uniqueness of Jesus. Setting him apart from all others. In other words, these miracles were God's certification of Jesus. They were his divine vote of approval upon Jesus. Every time Jesus did a miracle, it was a a clear endorsement by the Father that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Hear Him, as Luke records in chapter 9. But, you know, they were more than just an endorsement of Jesus. These signs and wonders testified that God was the one at work in Jesus. Notice at the end of verse 22 it said, God did these through Him in your midst. So through these miraculous signs and wonders, the Father was at work in His Son in the fullest sense. Jesus is a man from Nazareth, no doubt. But He was the unique God-man. He is God's very Son, the one whom was given the Spirit without measure. John chapter 3, verse 34. We live either through physical appearance, personal achievement, social status, financial gain, whatever it is. We all try to stand out in our own way, try to make a name for ourselves. But you know, if we truthfully step back, our desire to be, be unique is actually an accusation of how much we were all just alike. Every one of us, we're all self-seeking and self-promoting people. We aren't unique at all, actually. We all share in the same sinful tendency to try to make a name for ourselves. At the heart of humanity, is this desire to make much of ourselves. There's only one who's unique. There's only one who, every time he, everything he did was motivated by glorifying his Father in heaven. There's only one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give out his, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. The one who came to carve out not a name for him, Self, but for his Father who is in heaven and thereby received. He was no mere man. Every miracle performed, every mighty act achieved, every sign and wonder pointed to the uniqueness of his person, which made it first impossible for death to hold him. But secondly, there's a second reason here. It's because of his determined death. Verse 23 says this Jesus, this one attested by the Father is the one who would be nailed to a Roman cross to die a shameful and unjust death. But as horrific as this sounds, it was all part of God's definite plan. Verse 23, look at it. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up. He was given up. He was handed over unto death according to the definite or determined far more than God simply having the ability to anticipate the future. It speaks of God's determination of events. There was nothing about the death of Christ that caught God by surprise. It was a sovereign plan before the foundation of the world that His Son would be slain for sinners. 
And yet Peter says, look at it. He says, you did it. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty in no way diminishes our responsibility. While Judas, the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders, they co-opted to crucify Christ. Peter makes clear these Jewish people were just as responsible for nailing Jesus to the tree. Who killed Jesus? Historically speaking, from a human perspective, the Jewish leaders plotted against him. Pilate tried him. The people denied him and the Roman soldiers executed him. But in the ultimate sense, God delivered up his son to be slain. As Isaiah 53 verse 10 makes clear, it was the will of the Lord to crush his son. And humanity is responsible for it. When asked how he reconciles these two truths, you've heard this statement before from this pulpit of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Charles Spurgeon says it famously and it can't be approved upon, I think. He said, I would never try. I never have to. I never try to reconcile friends. Beloved, in the recesses of our finite minds, we may struggle to fit these two realities together. But on the pages of Scripture and on the stage of redemptive history, they are found working in concert to execute the Father's perfect will. It was the sovereign plan of God to deliver His Son into the hands of sinful man, to be slain for the sins of His people. And this reality speaks to the seriousness of what sin actually is. Sin is of such seriousness that the Father... Sin is not just bad decisions. Sin is not just wrong thinking. Sin is not just improper living. If so, God could have delivered up a great teacher. He could have delivered up to us a moral leader, a philosopher... Sin is willful rebellion against the creator of this universe. Sin cuts us off from the presence of God. Sin diminishes us, deceives us, robs us of our true design and calling, and it brings about spiritual and physical death. Sin is enmity with God. And is of such seriousness, it necessitated the delivering up of the Son of God to be slain. But I want you to hear the gospel truth this morning. God delivered up His one and only Son to be slaughtered because of your sin and yet for your sin. In other words, your sin resulted in Jesus' death and your sin is what motivated Jesus' death. Two times in this text, Peter lays blame for the crucifixion on his audience. Verse 23, you crucified and killed them. Now, this is not some kind of small crowd here. Right? Later in verse 31, you can look down to it, we learn that 3,000 from this group are come to faith in Christ. So many of these people, I can say the majority of these people, had nothing directly to do with the death of Jesus. But Peter cares nothing of that. Peter makes clear that everyone in this crowd no matter their direct involvement was guilty in, of this crime against Jesus that brought his death. How can Peter say such a thing? Because the real crime against Jesus was not the taking of his physical life. It was the rejection of Jesus as God's son. It was the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. 
It was the rejection of Jesus as the Savior of the world. Jesus was handed over on the grounds of blasphemy. He claimed to be God's very Son. He confessed Himself as the Messiah. And yet He was labeled a blasphemer and killed. So to reject the truth about Jesus is to vote for the charge of blasphemy against Jesus. It is to willfully reject Jesus as a liar. And to vote on the side of blasphemy is to say, in your heart, crucify Him. But Peter can say that we all took part in this crime against Jesus that brought his death for another reason. Because it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. He he died not for his sin, but for ours. As the hymn writer says, as we sang Friday night, bearing shame and scoffing, sealed my pardon with his blood. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus died to take upon Himself the curse our sin brought about. Every one of us in this room took part in the crucifixion of God's Son. Jesus was delivered up because of, due to the result of, our sin. But he was also delivered up for our sin, for the forgiveness of our sin. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Paul prayed it earlier, says in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. These two truths hang together, brothers and sisters. Until you confess and embrace the truth that Jesus was, it was your sin that nailed him to the tree. You cannot know for your sin. Do you know Jesus this morning? There's a world of difference for believing Jesus died for sin and knowing that Jesus died for your sin. Is that your confession this morning? That Jesus was delivered up because of your sin. And that Jesus was delivered up for your sin. Have you embraced Jesus? Death could not hold Jesus. Because His death was divinely determined by the Father. To do what? To lavish the riches of His grace upon all who believe in Him. There's a third reason here, though. Jesus cannot be held by death because of his glorious resurrection. And so the crucifixion of Jesus was not the final word. We're here this morning because of that. For Christ's atoning death resulted in his glorious resurrection. God was the author and cause of the resurrection. And that truth is spelled out in verse 24. And then it's again reiterated in verse 32. It says there, God raised him up. While men killed Jesus, God raised Jesus. And by so doing, the text says he loosened the pangs or the agony of childbirth. Now, Peter chooses an interesting phrase here, normally applied to childbirth, to make his point. Whether you birthed a child or not, we all know at least a few things about 
labor pains. Number one, they hurt. But secondly, when labor pains begin, there is no stopping a child being born. When it, while it might take an hour, it might take half an hour, like my wife goes into labor, it might take 20 hours. The pangs of childbirth will produce a child. And Peter uses this language depicting death as being in labor and therefore unable to hold back its child. The pangs of death produce death for each one of us. The pangs of death in our life will give way to death, but not with Jesus. Through the resurrection, God brought these pangs of death to an end. It was impossible for death to prevent Jesus from exercising His eternal rule and reign. It was impossible for the grave to keep Him. Death could not hold Him. God loosened the pangs of death when He raised His Son from the grave. Peter goes on to confirm the truth of Jesus' resurrection in two important ways. First, by the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. In verses 25 to 31, he quotes Psalm 16, applying it directly to Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make, make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter explains in verse 29, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn, had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David could not have been referring to himself. Why? He could not be when he said God would not abandon him to the grave or let his Holy One see corruption because David's dead. And he was buried and his tomb was still in Jerusalem. So being a prophet and remembering God's promise that an eternal descendant would sit upon the throne of David, David's words point forward to the resurrection of Christ. That's his point. Jesus died of old because God raised him from the dead. But in verse 32, Peter confirms this truth of the resurrection another way. It says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter now brings in the first person apostolic witness as proof of the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Christ did not happen in a vacuum. I know in a room this side we have some skeptics in the room. You would do well to consider the historic reality of the resurrection of Christ. It did not happen in a vacuum. It happened in time and history and was corroborated by witnesses. I want to remind you, to be a Christian, never believing in spite of or against evidence, as we are often so, so much told. The apostles preached a resurrection they witnessed with their own eyes. And this went well beyond just the apostles. Did the church? He says, For I delivered to you 
of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some had fallen asleep. More than 500 saw, heard, looked upon, and or touched the resurrected Christ like ours. Thomas was one. And the question is, how how did Thomas overcome his skepticism to believe in the resurrection? He didn't overcome his skepticism by just believing that Jesus rose from the grave in his heart. No, he overcame his skepticism. He believed because of the visible, audible, and tangible evidence of the resurrection. There were more than 500 witnesses, many of whom were still alive, and many of they knew Tommy had, fell in, had, had died, who had seen the resurrection. But just consider for a moment the man preaching here. This Peter, preaching so boldly, 3,000 people are going to come to faith. This Peter, just a few weeks ago, is the one who denied Jesus three times. And this Peter is the one who hid in fear before the very people he is now boldly preaching to. What happened? The resurrection happened. Peter saw the risen Christ. He spoke with Him. He ate with Him. And he went and laid down his very life and be killed for that reality. And Peter tells us that we have the Word of God, including the Old and New Testament, the Old Testament prophets, the apostolic witness in the New Testament, which Peter tells us in his second epistle, is more sure than the very visible represent, the very visible and tangible expression of Jesus that he saw. And we must remember the words of Jesus to, to Thomas, who said, Thomas said he would not believe until he saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus honored that. He allowed him to touch the very nail prints in his hand. But what did he say to Thomas? Jesus asked him, do you believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is Jesus punting on evidence of the resurrection? Not at all. He's telling us that we have this corroboration contained, given to us in the very word of God, that we are to believe in the resurrection. The empty tomb forever marks Christianity as distinct from every other religion. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death. Friends, this is a lot, a lot has happened since a year ago this Easter. I think we would all say that. I'm, a little bit before this, I was staring at a camera preaching that each of you were going to have to watch. Many of you have experienced and are currently walking through difficult times. I'm meeting with many of you, praying with you and pleading for you. Allow the resurrection this year to fuel your faith this morning. If God can raise His Son, if He can loose the pangs of death, then you can rest assured He will see you through your pain and your difficulty. We serve and belong to the resurrected Christ. Death could not hold Him. 
because of his glorious resurrection. There's an exalted position we need to contain. And it's from this exalted position of supreme honor and authority, having received the promised Spirit from the Father, that Jesus now pours out His Spirit. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what was being falsely assigned to some sort of drunkenness was in fact the pouring out of God's promised Spirit upon His people. The mighty acts of God, the, the good news of the gospel, was supernaturally going forth to differing peoples through differing languages. And this pouring out came as a result of Jesus' exaltation. Marking quotes David from Psalm 110 to make his point. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's point is that David no more ascended to heaven than David was kept from seeing the corruption of death. Peter points us beyond David to its fulfillment. And David designated his Lord as him whom whom Peter applies directly to Jesus. And Peter's conclusion is straightforward. Verse 36, look at it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain That God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. All that's been said thus far in Peter's sermon. Is brought to this point. This is Peter's conclusion. We know that because he brings back all the house of Israel. Peter's audience is to know for certain who Jesus is. And that by way of his resurrection. He now reigns as the exalted Lord. And these two titles reach back into the earlier references from the Psalms and especially the prophecy of Job, where it said in verse 21, Jesus is the Lord. It says, and it it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon Jesus is the Lord, on whom everyone must call erected by God in fulfillment of Psalm 16 and exalted to the right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Now, we should be clear, Jesus was already Lord in Christ. In Luke's gospel, he's proclaimed as such at his birth. But following the resurrection, the Father exalted Jesus to be in reality and power what he already was by right. Jesus is exalted both Lord and Christ through his resurrection. Peter's point is that something new, something essential has happened through these events. Jesus is now securely seated upon the throne of David, fulfilling all his divine promises, resulting in his spirit being poured out upon his people, empowering them to take his message of salvation to the ends of the earth. So what does this mean for us this Easter season? What does it mean? This is our conclusion here. What does it mean that Christ has been exalted to the right hand? It means a few things. First, the one who intercedes for us, Christian, is the one who has nail-scarred hands. And he's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us, interceding for us as Christians. But for us as the people of God, it means 
our mission as the church could not be any clearer. Through His death and resurrection, Jesus reigns as the exalted Lord. The throne is forever secured because the tomb is empty. Whatever you make make of this past year, we can all rest assured that nothing of the kingdom of God was affected in the slightest. And our mission as the church is still on the move. From His exalted seat of glory, take part in in His mission of proclaiming His message to the ends of the earth. This should encourage us, church, with all that we've been through in this last year. This should encourage us to unite together as the body of Christ, to stand together and to continue to be the church. But this message is clear. Look at verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart speaks of a shared conviction. They had crucified this Christ and God had exalted Him as the Lord of glory. Their consciences were, were pricked. And Peter replies in verse 38. They say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the, gift, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your child calls upon His name. Repentance. Complete change of mind regarding Jesus, leading to right attitudes and actions. And be baptized. What does that mean? That means you go public with your faith. That means you identify with His death and you identify with His resurrection. I want to keep it simple here as we close. Who is Jesus to you? Is He just a a figure from history or maybe a figure that you're wondering, is He even that figure? Who is He to you? The Bible presents him as the unique son. The one who was sent by the father into this world to die for the sins of the world. And look upon our sin, our shame, our guilt upon himself. And he's the one who the father raised. Demonstrating and vindicating everything about his son that he is the resurrected Christ. That he is everything that the Old Testament ends with forgiveness for us this morning. God has exalted him, setting him at the right hand of the Father, forever securing him as the Lord and Christ. Who is he to you this morning? Have you considered your sin? Have you considered that it was because of your sin that Christ went to the cross, but yet it was for your sins that Christ went to the cross? If you repent, if you turn from sin and turn to Christ, even this resurrection morning. Jesus is the unique son who forever reigns as the exalted Lord. How? Church, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one last song. And I encourage you to reflect over this last song. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? What does this resurrection Sunday mean to you? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son. 
Lord, we thank you for what the last couple of days has represented to us as a church. We gathered here on Good Friday to contemplate, to consider the slaying of your son. For those who believe. As our text says, the day that salvation goes forth to all who believe, who place their faith in you. We stand on Resurrection Sunday, gathering together. I, I'm sh- I know many here are here because a family brought them. Lord, might you cause them to consider their sin, our Savior, your Son. They might see Him as the resurrected Christ, as the one who holds in His hands eternal life in His offer. We say with Peter as a church today that you are both the Christ and the resurrected Son. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.